This is Space Cats Peace Turtles, the unofficial podcast for Fantasy Flight's Twilight Imperium. Episode 221. The Necropolis Empire. Music by Ben Prunty, featuring Matt Martins and Hunter Donaldson. Hello, it's me. What's up? Hi, it's Matt. And uh, just right off the top real quick, I'll just throw it out there. Hey, Hunter's not here this week. And it's kind of funny because like he sort of wasn't here last week, but that was just for like whatever dumb reasons. This week he's not here because like crazy stuff. So don't worry about it. He's fine. He's fine. Everyone, he's okay. Chill, chill. But he's not here this week and it's okay. But because I got to do a cool thing and I'm very excited to introduce my illustrious co-host for the day who is the the queen of lore, the the all-knowing, the all-seeing, it's Absol. Hello, Absol, what's up? Hey there, how are you all doing? <laughs> it's, it's very uh, wonderful to have you today. Uh, I binge-read uh, the second Twilight Imperium novel by Tim Pratt called The Necropolis Empire in the last couple days. You had already read it, uh, and of course you are the knower of all things lore. So you seemed like the perfect person to bring to the table to talk about this book. And we can just sort of give our takes, talk review, but then you can give us some deeper insights into kind of how this book feels and fits in with everything else we know about the Twilight Imperium universe. So that very sounds glad like a to have great you. idea. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let's let's dive in. Let's just get right into the meat and potatoes of this freaking thing. It. And uh, I, I want to say right off the top, I like this book a lot. Like, I actually genuinely really liked it. Uh, and I was laughing the entire way through. Yeah. Like, from the very first chapter where Bianca is being all dramatic in the field <laughs> with her hair blowing in the wind, all the way to the very end, I was laughing. So, it is. you know what? It's, it's, it's fun. Yeah, okay? it's a fun, it's fun book. <laughs> the, the first book is also fun. Um, and when if, if you go back and listen to our old episode about it, I think we tried to give the idea that like, hey, it's pretty good. It's a pulpy whatever thing. It's a, it's a little romp. Um, but there were also some other things that were like, I cannot overlook some of its problems, right? There were mm-hmm. there were problems that needed to be talked about. This one, I just think it's good. Like it's just a good book. It's not, here's the thing that everybody says. And, and I, I wanna take a moment to talk about this because I feel like it gets said all the time, which is, well, it's not deep literature or anything. It's not it's not fine literature. And what are people saying when they say that? Because what I what I don't want people to think is that that's some sort of um quality assessment. That it's not like, well, it's not as good as fine literature. So, absolutely right, when right. when you say that, when you think that, what is it that you're actually saying about the book? So, I have definitely said this about it too in defense of it a couple times. And what I generally mean when I say it's not high literature or something is I mean that it's not trying to make a point or a statement. It's not trying to, you know, shine a light on some deep, dark facet of the human experience or, you know, say how doomed society is or anything like that. It's just trying to be a fun adventure. Yeah. Yeah. And in that and regard, I, it, 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 I think it succeeds. Yeah. It works. It works real well. So, um, tonally, this one is a bit of a shift. Um, you know, the first one was supposed to be, um, like a uh uh what sort of a swashbuckling <laughs> mm-hmm. adventure um this one is a uh not rast- kind of a mystery yeah it's got mystery it's-, it's got um like like <laughs> towards the end at least it's got some like indiana jones like tomb <laughs> rating yeah, or whatever which is super cool um but yeah it, it is the story the main character is bianca bianca zing um and she is from a nothing planet and this is the story of her discovering um what lies beyond her shores her horizon right um so um the the idea here being that um it's not necessarily a continued storyline although there are a couple of recurring characters um it's not it's not a continuation of the first book's story and if anything too it almost has nothing to do with the first book's story Mm -hmm. at all um the B- Bianca Zing is our main character. She eventually comes across uh, Severin Dompierre, who, if you will remember, is the it's my favorite character from yes. the first book. And in the first book, 
we I, also my favorite character mostly because in the first book she's kind of the only character with a character arc as far as mm -hmm. things go that was maybe the biggest struggle of the first book was the idea that none of the characters actually change in any meaningful way and that would be like the main criticism i would lob at it and honestly this book has a bit of that too where the the books i think generally speaking are more focused on um kind of romping around the galaxy, the galaxy and, and they want to show off the ip basically yeah exactly they're showing off the ip and they're getting to do little snippets of lore tim's getting to work within the universe and it's not about like showing some huge character change but in the first book severin had that in spades severin went through like huge ch character changes throughout and the, <laughs> the problem with this book is it feels like we through all of that we lost we lost all of it <laughs> no matt she was my favorite character in the first book and when i was writing my notes because when you asked me to come on and discuss this with you i literally wrote in my notes why didn't i like severin <laughs> as much in this book yeah and i think the first reason for that is because it feels like they completely betrayed everything she went through i mean the first book she's a baronia letnev character and she was kind of an up-and-coming bureaucrat or whatever she was specifically up-and-coming but like entirely untested. She'd never had anything go wrong beyond mm -hmm. like, you know, just random, you know, subordinates not doing things right. She'd never truly been tested. This was, the first book was her first major test and she failed. Right. Hardcore. She <laughs> failed hardcore. And she had to come to terms with that. And during her adventure, she very clearly could see all the flaws that the barony had. And she was having to come to terms with the fact that everything she had dedicated to her life to was incredibly flawed. Mm -hmm. And yet, what do we get here? She's just a captain. Now she's just, yeah. now I'm in charge she's and now I'm a part of the bureaucracy and I don't care. I still dedicate my life to, I feel like there's times where she is somewhat knowing of, you know, she's, she's willing to admit um, maybe hypocrisies, but it's only mm -hmm. in an effort to and use them. And definitely times she shows that she learned from that previous adventure. Right. Uh, but that's not the, you know, learned as in learned tactical. Yeah. Yeah, tactically yeah. from that first adventure. But that's not the same thing as learning the lesson of that right. first adventure, which it felt like she had at the end of the first book. Yeah, yeah. Um, the only other recurring character isn't actually in it, but they do reference um, Sagasa, mm -hmm. who that was my favorite section of the first book, which is Sagasa is a, a guy known as, what's he called? The diplomat? The uh, the disciplinarian. The disciplinarian. It's an even crazier name. <laughs> but he runs a salvage yard on uh, one of the Vegas. And it's super Vega cool. Major, it's very, very good injection of lore. Uh, it, my favorite aspect of it in the first book was like, oh, cool. Now, when I play the game, I get to look over there at Vega Major and be like, oh, hey, I kind of know like a fun little story that happens down there. That's that's if I can get anything out of the T.I. novels, like that's what I want. And his name pops up in this, but he's not actually in it. Um, he's he's just or I guess he's in it for like a second, but he's just assigning jobs to one of our random characters. So then the only other uh, major, major characters we have is this small team of adventure seekers, treasure hunters uh mercenaries whatever you want to they're they're, they're kind of getting jobs but one of them is a human who i, don't, I never remember his name huvelt huvelt uh, i don't remember his full first name but his last name is huvelt yeah um and he's uh, a former rich kid that uh has fallen on plenty of hard times and is a pretty funny character no, there's like no development to him at almost at all but he's fun enough and he's not um in your face too often to where you ever get annoyed with him he's capable of being humble which is something that duval didn't really seem capable of yes. in the first book yeah duval being the real like main main character of the first book who was just kind of this like constantly arrogant swashbuckling like can do no wrong kind of guy and it just got old by the end i would say whereas this guy he's he's got flaws that he's even willing to admit to himself are flaws and he's fun and he uh spends most of his time with a nasroka pairing that is oh, i love these guys awesome yeah super super good not only is it just because like hey uh, i think we all have learned to agree that like some of the best stuff from pok is the nasroka like they're just a very cool faction and everything and getting to spend a bunch of time with a specific pairing is really cool and i just feel like tim pratt is like locked in on how to make that relationship 
uh, thing. Yes, there's this one quote that I really love that I'm trying to find right now. <laughs> the idea being that these these characters, you know, these the this faction is two different alien races that through their own historical, you know, lenses have come together and live their lives in these symbiotic relationships. And there's a whole passage where it's like kind of explaining all of that. Um, I feel like even deeper than like the back of the Nazaroka faction sheet gets and then getting time with these two characters where like you really feel the two of them are just like perfectly in sync. Do you have your uh, your quote? When they're both at the Tree of Grace, which is something we're going to talk about later, I'm mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. And um, Pavelt is trying to dock and they're being delayed because of a disturbance going on on the station. Weird. Wonder what's going on there. <laughs> um, and we have... Quavelt cursed and stomped back to the galley, where Ashant and Kleck were playing a card game. Quavelt had no idea how that worked, because Kleck was perched on Ashant's shoulder and could see all of the cards in her hand. <laughs> but apparently, the Nas was scrupulously honest when it came to playing games. And then, a couple paragraphs later, Ashant slammed down two cards, one depicting some kind of snake twisted into a sigil, and the other a curving fang. Serpent's tooth! Ha! The initiative is mine! I am sure you cheat. Kleck said, I don't know how, but you must. <laughs> so they, they're literally playing this card game and Kleck can literally see all of the cards in your yeah. hand. And yet they just are so in sync that they know neither of them is cheating by looking at the other's cards. Right. Yeah. And, and, and even more just the idea that like, I don't know, there's, there's really good stuff in there that's talking way more generalized about Nazaroka in general that just feels it feels right. It feels really good. Yeah, I, I really think he nailed how he talked about the Nazroka uh, in this book. We also get uh, random other characters. There's there's so the the uh, the whole book starts off on this um, small world called Darrett. D A R. Can we get into Darrett? Let's get into Darrett. <laughs> um, and it is it is a cool little planet that is. Uh, so it's where Bianca is from, and it is like a backwater. They don't know anything about what's going on in the rest of the universe. And so even just from the get-go, that is like deeply refreshing to just have. It's just like this thing where like they reference the barony, but every time they reference the barony or the Federation, they're like, if they still even exist, who knows? We're yeah. just here on our planet. Yeah. And I want to make a point like in the lore, it has been known for a while that after the Twilight Wars, there were hundreds, if not thousands of worlds mm. that used to be a part of this large galactic network. And then just because civilization collapsed, they lost that connection and they were stuck with whatever they had right. on that planet. Right. And they just had to survive or fail based on what they had. Yeah. And Derrett is such a great example of that sort of lost colony because batteries, power cells are such an important thing to them, mm. but also mechs are something that they're not common, but they understand them. But then also they've never seen or they don't know what computers are. So there's <laughs> right. just this such a great mix of just the, the stuff that was left behind that they can salvage and use. Mm -hmm. They understand the rest of it. They ju they're just clueless. Yeah, it's very cool. There's like there's there's like forests on Derrett where you don't really go in there because there's some creatures that'll that'll mess you up. But then like within that, there are ancient technologies that if you dig around in the right spots, you can open up. And I mean, it gets revealed later kind of um, more stuff about Bianca that has to do with this stuff. But like we also get some of our first glimpses of like some POK introduced lore, I feel like of, of the idea mm -hmm. of uh, even even if it's not explicit, like. The idea of the Titans of Ol as just these sleeping behemoths or these sleeping technology, you feel there that even on Darrett. Like by the time we came back to Darrett towards the end of the book, I was like, oh, for sure there's going to be like a Titan that's just going to wake I'm up on Darrett or something. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but the the planet is super cool. Um, it's it's another it's another one where I almost wish it could have been like a planet we know about in mm -hmm. in game but also it wouldn't make any sense because this this planet specifically is like so deeply disconnected that it would it couldn't have been one but it's just another one of those things where i wish i could have that knowledge now in my brain when i go to play ti of like oh i want to i want to set up my my space dock on Derrett and do a little thing over there because i remember all the people that were there and it just adds so much flavor 
to I mean, the game. It'd but probably be like a zero resource plan. Right. Match. You really want to you really want to dock, dare it? Right. On. It's a zero zero, <laughs> but with like a green tech skip or something. Uh, but so so let's get more into what this book is like properly about. I feel like we've sort of set mm-hmm. up a bunch of the characters, but I would love to. Uh, walk through some of the story. So yeah. I, w- I would say from here on forward, like we're probably going to throw in spoilers at random. Uh, so if you if you're really wanting to read this book before you listen to this episode, I would stop right here. Um, hopefully we haven't spoiled anything major for you yet. I don't think we have. Um, no. I don't so, think so. Uh, from here on out, like accept that spoilers are going to be kind of a thing. So book opens we've got bianca on this planet and she's just like kind of an orphan kid she woke up in the woods as far as she knows and uh she desperately yearns to go off off planet and and go somewhere else but the technology doesn't really exist on her planet to to do that she doesn't know if that's ever going to be a thing it's like literally the the tropiest most classic sort of story ever and that's fine it's It's good it's a a really easy way to onboard us yeah, it's the kind of uh, dramatic. She Bianca is the kind of dramatic character my sister would love. She just loves. <laughs> <laughs> she just loves that kind of that kind of. Oh, woe is me! I yearn to go off on a grand yeah. adventure. Yeah, and this this yearning, I want to even plant the seed. Uh, uh, is the first instance we get of the tropes surrounding Bianca are. Um, if you if you start reading it, and you're like, oh, this is tropey. Stick with this book because the tropes mm. work. The tro- the tropes do things <laughs> for you and help you get like there's a reason everything is very, very tropey in this book. And it's the biggest thing I want to applaud Tim Pratt for. And it starts right here. So we'll we'll just we're planting that seed and we'll come back to it. Um yeah, speaking it, of uh it's it's she doesn't just want to go off to the stars. Mm-hmm, there's mm-hmm. a very specific place, and it took her a couple years of her life to re- recognize this. Very specific place in the sky. And from Derrett, it's a series of three stars, and she's just looking dead straight down the center of those mm-hmm. three stars. Yeah, she, that's she, where she wants to go, <laughs> which is and oddly she specific. Know why. Yeah, yeah, oddly specific. I wonder why. I wonder why she, <laughs> something that specific. That's weird. So uh, eventually, a um, a barony ship passes overhead, and it's all the rage of like, oh my gosh, what's going on? Eventually, it's revealed that the the barony is sort of reclaiming territories and Derrett is now a part of the a part of the barony it is a barony planet and they will be um charging taxation they will be running things around here um and as part of that they start uh exploring around for for what all might be uncoverable on this planet yeah they can probably go into those forests with a lot more ease than the locals can. Right. Um, lore, lore tidbit. Um, so Torvald has a computer and he knows a bit more about galactic history. And he confirms that Derek wasn't actually the barony's lying. It wasn't actually a uh, old barony colony lost after the wars. It was a Federation of Soul colony. Mm-hmm. And I like that because we don't have a galaxy map, but sure. we do know two of the factions that have had some of the biggest notable interactions in the lore uh, up to this point. Yeah, yeah. Are the Federation of Soul and the Barony of Letnev. So we know they have to be close together. So th- it is entirely possible that there could be a colony world sort of on the edge of their space that the Barony happened to get to first. Yeah. And um, so I, I, I like that. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's it's good. And it, and it sets up the tensions that uh, are kind of sprinkled throughout because basically most of our main characters in this book are human and Barony. And it's, if anything, just setting the lore stage of like, these these factions have a classic beef with each other to the extent where people don't even know why they still have a beef with each other, but they just are not going to like each other because they're entire. I mean, for thousands and thousands of years, they have Humans been and in contest. Have just have been, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, heads together. So it is eventually revealed for now the idea that actually Bianca needs to go with the Barony because maybe she is some sort of. Uh, barony princess that is long lost on this planet there's all kinds of stuff i don't want to like go i don't want to like do every single beat of the story but to skip ahead basically everybody's lying to everybody about who bianca is and where she came from her parents have been lying to her her whole life and actually she was found in 
uh, one of these ancient technology rooms, uh, and in she an was ancient vault. Yeah, her dad she, found. She was grown. She's she's not of anyone's birthright. Uh, uh, it, it's not wrong that her dad found her in the woods, but he didn't just find her in the woods as an orphan. He found her in a chamber that she was created in. Um, and yeah, so there's she wasn't already, there when he found the chamber. Right. Uh, right. He came back the next day. Oop, hey, there's a baby inside this inside this sealed glass right. case. Worth noting too, uh, the the stuff of it was. I guess I kept having an issue with. There's an idea that he he like pressed a button or or something, and uh, he got his finger pricked, and that's mm-hmm. what then started uh, the process of this. So wouldn't it be safe to say then actually? Because I don't feel like this is ever addressed, but like Bianca is technically then based off of at least some of his DNA. They use it to make her human like, right? Is the excuse they yeah. give later. But I mean. It's funny to me that they spend all this time with her kind of discussing her origins and making her feel like, oh, is she from home or not? When it's like, well, we could very clearly say like, well, your dad actually is your dad. Like your dad is your dad. (laughs) Yeah, This other stuff was part of the process, but it's your dad's DNA that made you. And I feel like that was a thing that got glazed over and never brought up again, even even at the end of the book when it's like, I'm ready to go home again or whatever. We're still not talking about like, well, but you are like, specifically based off of the dna of who you've been your, calling your father this whole time yeah so there it is reasonable for you to consider him family right right it's not weird at all it's not it's not even a, or like it's basically not even an orphan story it is it's much weirder than that because late much later on i'm gonna skip ahead a little bit but it's revealed that she is actually a part of ancient mahakt uh experimentation um now the book does a lot of cool stuff in jumping around and how it decides to disseminate its information um it's constantly bouncing back and forth between bianca and severin um and and occasionally whoever right and occasionally we, we occasionally go way across the galaxy to the guy who's gonna catch up with us later which i have a whole complaint with that that we'll get to but uh the most of the story is these two um severin being the captain of the ships that are taking over Darrett um, and in charge of bringing Bianca on board and saying, hey, Bianca, we, we need to do all the stuff you're doing. And and basically it's all what the, the thrust of the plot becomes is the idea that um, Bianca is the key and the map to some sort of possibly ancient treasure or something we don't know what, but we know that it is Mahokton origin and we know that she knows how to get there. And there's a lot of humming and hawing about how to work with her or use her. But at the end of the day, she wants to go to that space between the three stars and they just need to let her take them there because that's where all of this stuff is. It ends up being an incredibly simple solution. And the thing too, this is another part I really like of the book is uh, Severin really wants to do things in like roundabout ways and like not easy ways when the solution is constantly like or you could just ask her you could just ask her if she wants to go just freaking ask her where to go (laughs) it's very good um so first they have to determine what is even going on with bianca and this is where we get uh the opportunity to go check out uh some yin brotherhood stuff which we have not had in the books yet and Mm -hmm. if anything a little bit of dissatisfaction for me. We don't actually go to any Yin Brotherhood territory. We go to nope. a Yin Brotherhood outcast called Brother Aaron. And uh, what was his place called? The Tree of... Tree of Grace. Tree of Grace. Uh, he he said that he named it that so that he could take uh, the Hills of Grace, which are the uh, place where the first Yin monastery was built, with him in his outcastness. So um, what is the deal <laughs> with Brother Aaron, Absol? So Brother Aaron is, as you said, a yin outcast. He is a brilliant geneticist, and we don't get really a uh, specific reason for him being outcast, Mm -hmm. but we do get that he uh, basically looked into uh, areas of uh, genetic manipulation that the yin found distasteful. Yeah. Um, And so they outcast him. They, you know, they banished him for that. And that might seem weird initially, but the yin are basically a cult. Right. So it's, it is not surprising to me that there might be areas uh, for all of their you know, major advancements, all the ways that they're ahead of the rest of the galaxy in genetic, uh, in, you know, in 
genetic engineering. Mm-hmm. It is not surprising to me that there are areas that their dogma just says, no, we don't do this. Right, right. Well, uh, for whatever reason. Yeah. And and what I love here, too, is what I think this book does really well and what, what I would hope for from novels and, and expanded universe stuff for Twilight Imperium is like connecting dots we might not otherwise connect. And there becomes from Brother Aaron, we'll get into it later, but there's a clear uh, echo of the stuff we're going to see with some Mahawk stuff. But then there's also like you're like uh, Absol was just saying that, you know, the Yin Brotherhood's cult like structure really isn't that far off from the Baronese bureaucracy. And like sometimes these factions have a lot of commonalities that are worth pointing out and worth, you know, showcasing. And And I think getting it on like a personal level where you can see characters that are similar and different from each other exemplifies that and shows that in really interesting ways. And that's, I feel like these moments are when I appreciate the books the most. Like Brother Aaron's chapter is super cool and super good for a multitude of reasons, this being just one of them. And another thing I liked about Brother Aaron is, so the Yin aren't necessarily seen as villains Mm -hmm. in TI lore or even in the game, but they're definitely not the good guys either. (laughs) Right. But Brother Aaron, uh, he's, he's got some issues going on uh, it's implied that the ghost story that was in the first novel of the Yin delegation that had a space station dissolve on them when they were trying to talk with the crews mm. um, might not have been so much of just a story and might have actually happened. Right. Um, but Brother Aaron is actually a really nice guy. All of the Letnev characters at this point are still trying to lie to Bianca. Don't want yeah. her to know anything about right. why they're there, what they're really trying to find. And he's just like, no. This is your body, your genetics that we're testing out. I'm going to tell you. You yeah. are the patient. You deserve to know. Right, right. It's it's super good, and it's it becomes the real proper... Uh, this, this, if anything, is the actual, like, okay, now the plot can, like, really Go. move in start. the direction it wants to move in. For, for a while, it's just been sort of, like, bouncing around of, like, a will-they-won't-they they figure out what the heck is even going on and like the brother Aaron chapter is is like a huge dump of like here's every single thing that's going on and now you may continue I give you permission to continue the story um, brother Aaron is also tied to our uh, Huevelt, Huvelt, whatever and the Nasroka people who just essentially got assigned a random task to take biological materials to brother Aaron um, and so let's talk a little bit about our other characters that um, up to this point, I think have two or maybe three chapters by like, and we're talking, this is like maybe 20 chapters in or something. Oh yeah. Um, so my, my other big sort uh, of. So, so interestingly, um, right around halfway through the book, page 197 is when uh, we switch over and they really start becoming major characters. Mm-hmm. That's, um, that's we- very far into the book. <laughs> and also, quite a coincidence yeah um so the 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 crazy thing that bothered me was by the time like we get one early chapter with hoyvelt and literally by the time we returned to him i like had to remind myself who this even was and what was even going on so for people like me with like bad memories it was way too big of a chunk and there's mm-hmm. very clearly and you probably you probably didn't shotgun the book in a single afternoon like i did so <laughs> right. yeah, you probably had multiple hours. days in between when you first saw him and when you saw him again right um but it it, it does stink because th- this is the first instance where it is clear to me that this book wanted to be longer than it was allowed to be. Um, there's certainly an idea where um, at three-fourths of the way through the book, they needed some characters that can get Bianca away from the barony, right? There needed to be yeah. some other kind of conflict where she's not just going to ride on a barony ship the entire book. That would be kind of boring. So we need like a reason for other things to happen. And so it's like, well, we better establish these other characters early on in the book so that we kind of feel yeah. like we've been going along with them. But then so they we know like, who they are, so we know we can trust them to right. not make the situation even worse. Right. But I feel like they did the absolute best bare minimum in that regard and and basically and i don't think that's tim i don't think that's tim's fault i don't um, either yeah it, it feels like a fault of the idea that first off there is a 
ton going on with Bianca's story. Like it's it mm-hmm. it did require this much stuff just to t- if anything Bianca's story has been kind of rushed so far. Like we're yeah. we're barely hitting our page count just to explain all the complexity of Bianca's story. So to me, it's really just like Tim Pratt really wanted to write like a 1500 page epic of all of this and instead got 300 pages to squeeze it all in. And so the stuff sometimes feels rushed, um but even despite that the characters are likable. The reasons they're showing up to places make sense. Like he, he's not missing any steps. It's just like, boy, it feels rushed. Of it's how so we're getting. crammed in there. Yeah. It's all just scrunched up. Yeah. Um, but so we, we, you know, now our stories start to converge because uh, after Bianca has been told everything that's actually going on by brother Aaron, she realizes I need to get out of the clutches of these barony. I'm going to escape. She makes an attempt. And um, basically shortly after that attempt to escape, uh, she, I want to skip some steps because there's like, there's basically multiple escapes back to back to back. And if anything, I feel like if you're trying to squeeze stuff into a book, I don't know why Bianca didn't escape and immediately fall into the arms of Hoyvelt, Ashant, and Kleck. I, I don't know why it's not for like another 30 pages before they actually meet up. There's like a whole thing, but it's an excuse to get Severin on board. Regardless, the point is Severin fakes being a, another prisoner with uh, with Bianca, and the two of them escape with Ashant, Kleck, and uh, Hoyvelt. Um, so yep. now the five of them are going off on their own to continue the journey without uh, Bianca thinking she's under the watchful eye of the barony, not knowing, well, suspecting, but not knowing that Severin is a spy keeping a a close tabs on her and constantly relaying information back to the barony. Yeah, exactly. So uh, the other stuff too that we have not talked about yet is um, the very, very crazy weird stuff that's happening with Mm -hmm. Bianca. And maybe now is where we need to start talking about the term Mary Sue. Mary Sue. <laughs> so, Absol, can you can you break uh, this uh, trope down for us? Right now, please keep in mind I am not an expert on this on exactly what this term means or where it comes from. Sure. So I may be getting some stuff wrong, but from my understanding, a Mary Sue is typically a self insert character who is extremely competent, extremely uh, well-liked, and basically cannot fail at anything. And very often how that manifests is them having extreme abilities or abilities that will just spontaneously appear to help them out of a situation Mm -hmm. um, and things like that. So going off of that, it's not too big of a stretch to say Bianca might be one because she is constantly demonstrating new abilities just out of thin air. Right. Well, and and I would say Tim Pratt as a writer is sort of prone to this. I feel like the first book is a lot of people with not very many flaws where things go exactly as planned Mm -hmm. for them. Right. I I feel like in general, um, if I have one, criticism of tim pratt which i try not to do to be honest because i don't i don't care and i don't see the reason and and i like the guy uh but if i have one criticism it's that generally speaking i don't think he injects enough genuine conflict into these books i don't feel like there's mm-hmm. actually things going wrong with costs uh and, yeah, it's and the, always and, more fun to see characters fail and overcome than it is to just see them succeed and succeed and succeed. right and and instead it feels like we see them succeeding and and as if we are meant to go oh cool cool oh cool all the time when it's oh like, she it, can do that too right yeah it, it doesn't feel as cool as i feel like it's being put on the page but the idea is these powers are starting to awaken in uh bianca she uh the, the way she escapes the guards uh, is that she's like she can slow down time in her brain and go cr- move crazy fast. She has amazing reaction time. She's super smart. She can do calculations uh, on the fly. Uh, she can remember basically anything she hears. She learns the entire Latinev language in like three days. Right. She's been she's learned. You said earlier, Darrett, they didn't even have computers. Start of the book. She had to be told what a computer is. Yeah. And she has learned high level hacking to hack through uh, barony military uh, encryption. Yeah. In the few days she's been on this ship. And there, there is a point in this book where you're you're reading this and you're going, OK, this is ridiculous. This feels um, stupid uh, because it's 
why is she this good at this? It, it, it just feels like it's too much. But I guarantee you, it's, again, working towards a genuine, authentic place that the plot wants it to. And and if anything, it's, it's, in an, it, it's going to uh, be a bit of an inversion on the idea of the Mary Sue. This is a point you brought up, Absol, and, and I'd love I'd love to hear you kind of hash this, this yeah, idea so, out. Um, throughout the book, there have been these tiny little chapters, like three, four paragraphs, mm-hmm. barely a page of just uh, some mysterious figure. We're pretty sure it's a Mahawk after everybody starts talking about them all the time. Yeah. Um, but, like, it's just this person who's slumbering and then they half wake up and they get, like, this tiny little message of the child has been born. Mm-hmm. And then they wake up again. The child has uh, left the planet. Right. And then when once Bianca and Severin have met up with Huevelts and Ashant and Kleck, and they're going off there on their merry way. They're doing their, they're doing their adventure. <laughs> <laughs> um, Bianca's taking advantage of her freedom to just read everything she can. Like mm-hmm. she's getting on the galactic interwebs and... <laughs> She's just reading everything. And at that point, I just had this feeling of dread settle over me. And I just said, oh, no, she's an encyclopedia. She exists and she's this desperate for information so that the person who made her can crack open her head, Mm -hmm. take all that info out and know what he missed while he was asleep. Right. And that that ends up being... uh, it's that and more, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. yeah. which is to say, so they, they, they continue on this adventure and then we start to get into like some real POK stuff. This book was very much meant as a right after POK release. This book was supposed to come out not far after MB. You know, the first book was like a teaser of what's maybe to come in this POK expansion you haven't seen yet. Ooh. This is the like, you know, the stuff now let's expand it. They happen upon a ship that is an Argent flight uh, ship that's been destroyed by what we in the know could tell is going to be a titan of all later we meet some titans of all that are guarding this secret mohawk stuff they find their way into this um this not quite planet this constructed planet that is the tomb that they've been looking for right we're we're, we're, we're skipping a lot of beats here but yeah the, the 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 titular necropolis is uh this place they're going to and at this point still bianca doesn't even know what any of this is for Mm-mm. but they go through uh this this tomb which is the the tomb raidery bit where they're like literally like dodging traps and like jumping across things it's it's a very goofy section of the book but and at one point too i was even like why are we going through all of these motions but the point is there are three different groups you're keeping an eye on and you get to watch all three groups navigate these traps and one of the groups is not as good they have a very bad time they have a very unpleasant time yeah a very like 30 people die uh which is a super tonally strange thing. This book, I, I feel like this book doesn't know if it wants to be a young adult novel or not, uh, because at times it's like written very cheekily and like, oh, this would be perfect for like a 16 year old kid or whatever. And then they'll like say bad words all of a sudden. You're like, well, that probably wouldn't normally be allowed and in a book like murder, that. Murder and then they just start, towards the them. end of the book, they just start murdering everyone horribly. Uh, so it really goes off the deep end towards the end. But they're navigating all these chambers and Bianca eventually finds this mahawked warlord who has been summoning her. And it's revealed that Bianca is was created by this warlord named Kornok Weir, uh, an ancient mahawked uh, a, a warlord who similar to brother Aaron did experiments even the Mahawk gene sorcerers were not fans of and was sort of ostracized but then during the fall of the Mahawk was able to sort of secure their own way of I guess surviving for a millennia or two yeah, so important to note uh, this place that they're going to is not Ix everybody thinks right. it is but it's not so it's the only Mahawk here is Kornakweer yeah, this ends up distinctly not being um, actually like an origin story for Prophecy of Kings, even though mm-hmm. I think there's a big chunk of this book where you're like, oh, we're like actually going to be revealing we're the events. There? Yeah, we're going to do the events of the opening of Prophecy of Kings. It's actually not that, even though it's it's tied very tightly to all of those events. But uh, it's revealed that Kornok Weir did, in fact, set up the plan for Bianca to be created 
and to be genetically pulled from whatever civilization was in charge of the planet by the time the awakening process started, which at that point then was humans. So that's the mm -hmm. only reason Bianca happens to be human. But not only is, like Absol said, an encyclopedia, she's she is designed to be able to take in massive amounts of information so that uh, Kornok Weir can gain that information, but also her body is meant to be Kornok Weir's body. Kornok Weir is going to transport his mind into Bianca so that he can be the super soldier and the super mm -hmm. warrior and begin his new reign of terror on the entire galaxy. Yeah, so this is his the, body. She was just keeping it warm for him. Exactly. So the idea that she's been this Mary Sue is like perfectly folded into the entire conflict at the end. And it's, it is literally part of the climax. And I think structurally, that's what makes it so so cool and works so mm -hmm. well. And and I think it's it's too easy to write off uh, this book as like, oh, it's just full of tropes. It's like, yeah, but in this one, like the tropes are being used for something. I think the first yeah. one was a bit tropey, but this one literally, I feel like Tim Pratt like found something to do with that stuff and decided like, I'm going to make this book about those tropes and use them in a way that that really does something so one interesting thing about this is technically uh i don't think they ever come out right and say it bianca is a mahakt right she's she's just a mahakt in a human shell she's a mahakt m&m she's got all that <laughs> good mahakti center and then in a human shell that's good yeah uh, yeah, it's it's honestly it's kind of confusing and and to be real with you in the end It maybe doesn't matter. Yeah, <laughs> uh, the, these it's, books it's, are very specifically like forbidden from having vast lore implications They're forbidden from mattering basically. Yeah, <laughs> which is unfortunate because I think Tim could do a good job if he was yeah. allowed to write a book that matters Yeah, yeah, it, it would be very engaging to let him just like take the reins for a while and, and see what he can do um, But let's talk about uh, maybe the one big thing that is mm -hmm. has some crazy lore implications um, the way that Bianca is able to defeat this Mahawk's warlord is by the use of a knife that they found on that Argent ship earlier. Well, at one point, Severin pulls that knife on Bianca and it completely disrupts all of the powers she's had access to. And it like freaks her out and she has some trouble disarming Severin. It's like the most struggle she's had the entire book. Nothing else has ever really gone wrong for her. Well, that's not true. We'll come back around. Actually, let's say it real quick. I don't, I also don't, I, I, I put up challenge of this Mary Sue point because even though uh, Bianca is an, is a all-powerful being, she's also wildly naive yeah. regularly throughout the book, and that is the biggest part of her character. And if anything, that's her biggest character growth is like shirking off some of that naive, naivety or accepting a certain amount of it and deciding to trust people uh, to, to a certain degree. But uh, this... This knife comes into play right there at the end as she's finally confronted Severin for being a spy and Severin has possibly the only tool to stop her. Um, she's able to get the knife from her and she's able to use it against Kornok Weir to essentially defeat him. She stabs him in the back a bunch of times and he he goes down, turns into a pile of robes. Yeah, pretty much. So let's talk about a little bit more about this Argent knife then. Yeah, because this is really I don't know what's going on here. I don't know if any of this is established. And so I look, okay. I look to you, Absol, to tell me, is this a thing? Is this a so, thing at all? <laughs> none of it is established yet. Okay. Um, so... The big thing is we know the Lazax defeated the Mahakt. Mm -hmm. From what we know about gene sorcery, that would be very difficult. Now, the Lazax were a young and fiery race, as they were described. Mm -hmm. And um, so we know they were good, but they would have needed some sort of technological advantage to right. combat or at least, you know, slow down gene sorcery from just like turning the Lazax themselves into, you know, thralls. Right. So this seems like this seems to be the way Tim has chosen to explain that away. Oh, they have something that can basically turn off all these super cool abilities that the Mahawks can give themselves and their servants. Right. Um, this is our MacGuffin. Sort of, yeah, it's some sort of radiation or something, and these knives, the, the whatever these knives are made out of, radiate it. And then the sheaths are specifically made to block it so that they mm -hmm. can be carried without, you know, irradiating people or right. something, I guess. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's 
story-wise, it something like this needed to happen. There sure. needed to be some way to defeat Kornakweer. Otherwise, he would just win because this was set up for him to win. There was yeah. no way Bianca was doing it on her own. Right. But I'm interested in exactly what this would mean if this were to be a canon thing. Mm-hmm. Because the fact... So the derelict ship they find... Thankfully, we don't know exactly how old it is. As I think Quivelt says, nothing rots in space. So it could have been there for millennia. And maybe the way to make these Mahawks defeating weapons has been lost. But it also could have just been there for a couple weeks. We don't know. Mm -hmm. And if that's the case, then the Argent Flight's behavior after the Mahawks return to the galaxy gets very interesting. Can you can you do a quick recap, super quick mm-hmm. recap of um, the Argent Flight as a faction? Because I think my memory of them is thrown off. Like in in my head, they just came back in Prophecy of Kings, almost like through a time portal. But have they actually been around and just like not nobody talks about them? Or like where? where how did the Argent Flight come back in the time of Prophecy of Kings? Okay, so the Argent Flight never technically left. Okay. Um, so the Argent Flight is a is not a species. They are an organization. And in right. fact, not really that big of one. Um, the species that makes them up is the Shikrai, which are the bird people. Right, right. Um, and basically, the Shikrai were at the verge of extinction when the Lazaks saved them from the Mahakt. And they said, hey, thank you for doing that. We'll be your servants. And the Lazaks said, great, we're going to kick these guys out. You lock uh, and lock the door behind us. You make sure nobody brings the key. Mm, mm-hmm. And so the Argent Flight basically just took up shop on our side of the door, stopping anybody who got close to Acheron from opening the door and right. letting the hawk back in. So, so they've been is, here the they've been here is, the entire time. Yeah, this is the stuff that Tim is pulling from deciding, okay, it, it should be an Argent Flight tool that does this because clearly they have some capability of holding the Mahawk at bay. Yeah, but basically your point is this has some very strange <laughs> implications that if if the Argent has a tool that can completely subdue the Mahawk, why aren't they more popular? Like why aren't yeah. they a bigger deal in the lore if they were they like would be, the one thing that saved everyone? <laughs> yeah, they they would be, you know, able to show, hey, we've got the tech that can beat these guys, right. help us beat them, and then right. why wouldn't everybody just do that? Or if they're not going to broadcast that, that says a lot about them that maybe they want to be the ones to beat them and they're selfishly not giving other people the tools to do that right. so that they can be the ones to get the glory. Yeah. Either way, there's it's kind of has an uh, interesting statement on the flight and how they operate. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so the the end of this book kind of wraps up. She stabs him. There's still some stuff of like, hey, Kornok, we are still sort of in your brain. Uh, Bianca goes comatose for a while um, as they're transporting yeah, he, he her got, and escaping. The download got interrupted at about 15%. So there's <laughs> right. still little bits, little bits of him in there. There's that corrupted, uh, incomplete file yeah, still present exactly. on the hard drive, basically. And so she does some like inner she turmoil stuff. Yeah, <laughs> she, de- she defrags Kornok Weir. Um, and if anything, too, that part is even, I would almost say, rushed of just like, well, she just kind of, you know she what? She figures him. it out. <laughs> so good for her. They do um, a brain fight and she beats him. Yeah. If anything, I feel like generally speaking across all of this, I feel like there were multiple instances where uh, Hoyvelt could have been injected as uh, a a reason to exist and have been, you know, is, couldn't there have been some way that Hoyvelt wakes her up or, or something? I don't know. I just feel like he, him and his compatriots, uh, Ashant and Cluck, never get a time to shine. They're just sort of they're there great and characters. along for the they ride. They just don't do much. Like, yeah. Their entire point is to be a taxi service for Bianca to get her right. where she needs to go. Right. And it, it's the only reason that's upsetting is because I really like them. Like, yeah, I like exactly. them a lot. And I, I just want them to have even more time in the sun. I want them to get to do a lot more. Um, but the book ends very cool with Bianca going back to Derrett. Of course, like any good uh, I wanted to leave story, she realizes she never wanted to go away in the first place. I can relate to that. Um, mm-hmm. She goes back, but she's got a fun Titans of Ul uh, partner that hangs out with her. And she's she controls her own little um, Natreon section. Vigilant is his yeah. name. 
Um, so he and some other Titans are kind of on her side. They're going to go protect Derret. They're going to relinquish Derret from Barony's control by uh, having a handful of Titans just hang out outside of the planet. I wanted to ask you um, if even that necessarily tracks or if, or if we're just kind of sidestepping and saying like, oh, well, these Titans are under her control. But my understanding of the Titan storyline is they woke up and are now on their own they're not serving any master mm-hmm. they don't serve the mahawk they don't serve anybody so I, I had a little bit of trouble in my head understanding what was going on with these specific titans and why they're. i think i got it though i think i can explain it okay um so all the titans were the um creations of the mahawk mm-hmm. so the titans we see in this book are specifically the creations of kornak weir oh right he is still okay. in the galaxy at large and they are still following his orders Gotcha. They are not part of the Titans of Ol as a whole who will wake up a little bit later. Right. However, okay, that, that, that does make a lot more sense. Because, yeah, there's there's multiple things with Kornok Weir that are like, hey, I am literally like a separate faction mm-hmm. from the rest of the Mahawks. I tried to defeat the Mahawks themselves to to make my faction the ruling one and mm-hmm. have now failed by the end of this book. But, okay, that, that tracks much better. But the my biggest uh, thing at the end of this book is just the sense of, man... This story feels like it's really just started, and we we know We're almost without a back doubt at the happily ever after. Right, uh, we we know that the third book uh, won't really have anything to do with Bianca, although and we it do really know can't that because she's she's just so powerful. It was right. great having her be this way in her story, where yeah. it, there's a reason for it. But if she shows up again later, it's just not going to be fair. Yeah. Yeah. It's sort of like um, introducing Captain Marvel in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And it's like, that's oh, a she's fun so character. Cool. She Go never gets to show there. up, though. Yeah. <laughs> Go away. We need people to actually struggle. <laughs> uh, but I, I, we do know that Severin is likely to show up in the third book. I mm-hmm. wonder if I, I think I can't remember exactly what Tim said in his interview with us. I don't think Severin plays as big of a role in the third book but i'm not sure although i can't imagine even if she is a big character in the third book at this point i don't know how to feel about that anymore because yeah this book she didn't undergo any growth and if anything like we don't even get like a conclusion for her she just leaves yeah. she's just gone yeah. she just hops on her ship and she's out of there and we don't she's see like, from oh, her again. well we we failed in our mission we didn't get the stuff we were after right Peace out. Right. I, I wouldn't be surprised. And I guess my hope would be maybe the next book is like, well, you had a a major failing. Maybe the Baron is going to punish you in some way. And we can return to these ideas. The first book planted in your head of maybe these folks aren't so good. I would love to see Severin come yeah. back and deny the Barony as a, a proper ruling class and, and try for to me, do something different. Yeah, for me, it's going to be I was so excited to see her in this book because I knew she was in it. For me, mm-hmm. the third one, it's going to be. I have to see how how she's done yeah. in this third book for for me to be excited for her again. For sure. Well, and that's that's the whole book. Um, Absol, any any kind of last big notes that you want to return to, or any anything else you want to say about just like how how the book was for you? Um, I know for me, again, I liked it a lot. Yeah, I liked it a lot too. As I said, I was laughing the entire time. Um, I think we covered most of the points that I really wanted to go over. Um, there were a couple, as always, there's going to be a couple little lore issues in there. Uh, not everything can be perfect. Um, yeah, we, we talked about this before we started recording, but you know, with a star Wars book, there's like a team of producers and editors that are there to make sure all of uh, the things fall perfectly in line with the established star Wars universe. And in the twilight Imperium universe, we have Absol. <laughs> that's, that's, yeah. that's, that's our person. And she was not consulted for this book. So we don't really yeah. have the encyclopedic look at every single thing that can possibly happen. So there's little there's little glitches throughout the book that are like, eh, but, I don't think that person would say that, but oh well. Yeah, but I'm fine with those on, on the whole. I don't <laughs> yeah. expect everybody who's into Twilight Imperium to know the lore as good as I do. That would sure. be entirely unreasonable. <laughs> Well, and at least we get these books to get yeah, uh, exactly. a better look at them. I, I definitely, you know, I like reading the backs of the, the faction sheets well enough. But at the end of the day, most of the backs of faction sheets read like some sort of like history book or something. Mm-hmm. And for me, I really need characters to get at least mildly invested in to start to really feel something for any level of lore. So the books help wanna... me a lot with that kind of thing. Yeah, I do want to ask you a question, though, Matt. Sure. Um would you enjoy this book if you didn't already know what TI was? This would, book? 
I this think I would bring in a new new fans to the to the universe. Yeah, okay. I, I I think this book would. I do not know if the first book would do that. I think the first book um, is is a weaker book and then only relies on like you being into the established universe. Whereas this one has like genuine mysteries that you don't need to know anything about the universe to like it. This book explains a lot of the lore to you. I even think the first book sort of just like um, assumes you know about the lore. So like you go to the universities of Jolnar stuff and they sort of explain that planet, but they don't actually explain that much about universities of Jolnar culture. Whereas this book takes the time to explain Nasroka culture and it explains Barony of Letnev culture. You know what I mean? It's like it, in great detail, it really honest. introduces you to yeah. the lore. So mm -hmm. I, I think it's a great onboarding for that. Kind and of actually stuff. there's, remember that moment I talked about of realizing, oh no, she's an encyclopedia. Yeah. Yeah, I, I had that moment then because <laughs> I knew what the Mahakt were, but uh, until we actually meet Kornak right. Weir, you know, in the climax of this book, right. most of the people have been talking about Ix the way that people thought it was before prophecy, the Pro Prophecy of Kings event, which was a paradise world. Nobody right. was talking about the Mahawked as these grand evil. Horrible things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. It, so it, it's it I think it fits all really well. And if anything, yeah, like for me, I didn't know she was actually an encyclopedia yet. Like that stuff didn't click with me yet until we actually got there. It just was like Yeah, yeah so you I got to have that experience much closer to the climax. Right. And exactly. it got to hit a bit harder. Right. Yeah. And and it and it made me if anything, like I have like I've kind of glazed over the Mahawk sheet before and I and like talked to Dane before about what the what the Mahawk are meant to be, but I didn't have any proper idea of like the machinations of that, how how it actually works on the ground. And this book like helped you feel that, helped you understand like why the Mahawk are so freaking terrifying. Like they are they are a genuine problem because like they get inside your brain and and compel you to like that they are super powerful i mean it's mm -hmm. it's they are a much bigger threat than m almost any of the other the factions are, in the established uh, lore the mahakt are what's his name uh kilgrave from jessica jones on a galactic scale that's what the <laughs> mahakt are and that's why they're terrifying right right yeah i so yeah i uh to, to put the pin in it i i I definitely think this book is actually worth reading, even if you've never read an inch of the lore, even if you don't even know that much about Twilight Imperium. I think it's a pretty good uh, sci-fi book. Again, it's not great literature. It's not yeah. classic literature, but it's not trying to be that. It's trying to be a, a really fun pulp novel. And even within that pulp of like, well, we're going to lean on a bunch of old tropes. It's using those tropes in really, really interesting ways. It's not just leaning on tropes because Tim Pratt's a lazy writer. Like it's none of that. It's Tim Pratt looked at the tropes and goes, how can I like abuse that in a, in a really interesting way? Yeah. I think that, I think it was really brave to try and write a character that was this close to being a Mary Sue. Right. Even though he knew he was going to like do the whole inversion with, oh, she's just being prepared as a body for the villain, which is a great idea. The fact that he even decided to try that, that's right. a really gutsy move for a writer. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And, and I just I can't talk enough about how much I liked it. And it made me really excited for the third book, because the, the first book, I remember what I said after it was this was cool. I am mostly just glad that this stuff exists, right? Mm -hmm. I'm just glad the TI uh, universe is getting expanded. You know, we've got graphic novels coming soon. We've got the the RPG sort of around the corner, uh, except for nothing's no around way. the corner in the, COVID time. So who they knows? Delayed it. I'm I'm so sad they delayed it. I know 2022 at least, and who knows how many times it happens again. I'm I'm hoping it. I think it'll probably properly come out next year. But regardless. Um, we're getting way more stuff in it, and I'm just excited that all of that is happening. Oh, and I am too. To me, have no idea. This book was a proper like, hey, it's happening, and it's pretty good. It's good. Mm -hmm. Like it can be. It gets to be good too, and and that's just. I, I'm just thrilled for that. That that excites me to no end. Absolutely. Well, absol absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, it was yeah, kind of a last minute call that we that we hit you up for this. But uh, I knew you were ready because you, you drink this stuff up like it's Kool-Aid. So um, thank you so much for for not only helping me through the lore, but also just being fun to talk to about this book. This was this was an awesome conversation. Absolutely. I had a lot of fun. Thank you for uh, reaching out to me.
um, I'm happy to help. Of course. Um, well, and, and you and I have for a while now been trying to get different projects uh, off the ground. And, and my hope is that this is my impetus to start calling you more often and, and, and get more stuff going. I, I, I think I'll even just tease it. Absolutely. I've been talking for like a year about doing just like lore readings on the show. And she has sent me audio uh, of her reading sheets. And I want to record audio of reading sheets. And we just want to put those up in the feed. And that's just been a thing in the back of our minds forever. And this is me saying, I'm putting it out in the universe so that now I'm forced to do it rather than putting it off any longer. And we're going to start to make that happen so we can get cool uh, readings from both me and you. And I'm, I'm, I, I, I hope we can get that stuff coming out here relatively soon. Yeah. Do we want to uh, put the first one at the end of this or do we want to save it for later? I'll save it. I'll, but I think it will come out very soon. We've also got uh, a Galactic Council. We'll talk about the Galactic Council oh, poll yeah, here in just yeah. a minute. But But there's a very real chance that some... Uh, Galactic Council lore hits and I just feel like I, I feel like we're hitting a new era where like lore mm -hmm. is going to come up more often and that's the perfect time but my, my big vision for these lore dumps is as separate little things in the feed so that nobody has to like sift through episode numbers but they can just like see the the podcast feed and be like oh i want to listen you know i want it to be like an audiobook of the lore i just want i want that i want people to have access to an that. audio collection okay yeah a little audio a little lore audio collection so we're, we're going to get to work on that in the meantime you should go check out airdane's uh batteries not required videos because he's going one step further and like consolidating lore and kind of making some of his own sort of assumptions about lore but uh if you're thirsty for more lore material that is the best place to go. His YouTube channel is incredible uh, in, in what it offers up to the Twilight Imperium community. Love his stuff, yeah. Well, thanks again, Absol, for joining me, and uh, uh, we will definitely see you around here soon. Yeah, and I'm always on the Discord, so uh, if anyone has any lore questions, feel free to hit me up. I'm more than happy to answer them. I want to thank all of our weird bears, Big Al Cappuccino, Farganess, Squeamish Emu, Brassbird, Brian Kaluin, Son of Leto, Alice, Sunfax, Absol, Rwise, Fancy Zeeling, T.G. Welch, and Astoria, and our little peace turtles, Patience is a Virtue, my son is also named Bort, Anvilier, Frank G, Gazkio, Rekka, Carnal, Naderade, Nick, Privix, Rolo, Uncle Baddy, Teddy's Jam for You, Goondock, Doberhuawa, and Boo Poo. Uh, also, I want to remind everyone that this month, November 2021, is the month to sign up on our Patreon so that you will rece receive the invitation for our Tournament 4 2022 Patreon tournament. Become a patron right now. Uh, first week of December, we will send an email to all patrons who were a valid patron during the month of uh, November as a Galactic Counselor or higher tier. That will be how you get the email to then sign up for the tournament. Also, this coming weekend is the Invitational Tournament Finals, November 20th at 1400 UTC. We can finally see the conclusion of some of the most ridiculous games I've ever seen in my life. Uh, this tournament has been awesome so far uh, with, with plenty of well-known faces from throughout the community uh, duking it out. I've already heard rumblings that some of these players are planning some nasty business, so I'm very, very excited to see what we end up with in the finals this coming weekend. Uh, you can keep sending us This Imperium Life Stories to spacecatspeaceturtles at gmail.com. Uh, we're going to start trying to do Play of the Week. I'm not throwing into this episode, but I'm hoping next week to start doing uh, Play of the Week as a weekly segment here at the end of episodes. Uh, so keep sending us those plays. Cool things that happen, crazy things that happen, stupid things that happen, whatever, man, I don't care. Uh, Galactic Council poll. Hey, guess what? We've got a Galactic Council poll going on right now. You've got four options. Uh, the first one is tabletop simulator versus real life. This is currently the front runner. Number two is Rex final days of an empire lore. Uh, for all the people who can no longer get easy access to the Rex game, we wanted to break down the lore. So if you like this episode and you want more lore, go vote for that one. I know there's a coalition forming to try to get this episode to happen, and I would be super stoked to do this episode. So uh, I am all in favor of the coalition. Uh, there is also a third option, which is uh, Root the Winter Tournament. We talk with uh, Garrick about the tournament he's got going on right now. Uh, we talk about the setup for that tournament and some of the rules that they're using um, for that tournament. And fourth is let's learn sidereal confluence. It's just like this other board game that people freaking love. Uh, I will say there's a coalition of sidereal confluence people teaming up with Rex final days of an empire lore, and they're agreeing to vote on empire lore this month. 
so that next month they can vote on scenario confluence. I'm fully in support of this, as long as you get the backing of your Speaker of the Council. If Planet Earth approves and wants scenario confluence on next month's vote, we will put scenario confluence on next month's vote, and then all of you lore people who win this month, maybe, we'll see if you do win, then you can team up with scenario confluence. But for those of you who didn't know that was happening, there's people teaming up to try to defeat Tabletop Simulator versus Real Life, also known as the boring option. Uh, also, the Homebrewers Guild. This month, uh, we are doing strategy cards. Give us weird new strategy cards. Uh, we have seen some awesome ones so far, and uh, you can get even weirder, man. We don't care. Do whatever. Uh, there's been plenty that have like stuck to the main conventions. I don't even think you have to do that, man. Who needs command counters? Nobody. I don't need structures. What do you need structures for? Do crazy stuff. Um, also, you can rate our podcast on Apple iTunes or wherever you listen to the show. I don't care, man. Give us a five-star rating because it would make me feel really good inside my heart. Uh, and you can also go to our website for more information about our Patreon, how to sign up to become a part of the tournament. You can also find our Twitter where we, I don't know, tweet and stuff. Uh, you can find our Discord where lots of conversations happen about all facets of Twilight Imperium uh, or Leader Games products or stuff about our new show, Old Gamers Almanac, and video game conversations going on over there. You can also, hey, we teased it forever and finally did it. There's a new shirt available up on our merch store on our thread list. You can find that on our website as well, spacecatspeaceturtles.com. But the new shirt is awesome. It is a thing designed by Sun Sanders, our artist who does like all of our art stuff, but it's like a Titan of Ol, as if he found like some Gundam armor. And then we have this super cool like SCPT as if it were mobile suit Gundam logo. It freaking rules and everyone should go buy this shirt. I love it so much. Um, so yeah, that's the episode. Everyone, send their love to Hunter, because I love the guy, and he wasn't here this week, and I miss him. I miss my friend Hunter, and I can't wait to have him back next week. I hope I have him back next week. I don't know. I can't predict the future. I'm not Bianca. Okay, bye. Thank you for listening to Space Cat's Peace Turtles, and thanks to Ben Prunty for the use of his music. You can find more at benpruntymusic.com and benprunty.bandcamp.com. Pax Magnifica, Bellum Gloriosum. <laughs>